You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, 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 everyone. I am Johnny Christ, and this is Drinks with Johnny. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Now, before we get into today's episode, I want to just say that I hope everyone is healthy, safe, and sane out there. Um, everyone should be practicing your social distancing. Um, it's not about how severe this is going to get. It's about just doing the right thing for society. Let's get through this coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 together. And we could all move on a lot quicker with our lives. Some people are, are unfortunately passing from this, so it is a real thing. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not any reason to go completely crazy, but we should definitely do the right thing and do what, they're, what the, uh, w, the, the who is asking us, WHO, um, uh, to keep our distances, six feet or more. Uh, we've been practicing it here in my household in Huntington Beach. And... Uh, so it's, it's just the right thing to do, but you also want to stay sane, okay? So uh, getting, getting uh, some sort of physical activity going, um, I know that there are plenty of uh, home fitness videos you can find on YouTube, um, and this isn't about just, you know, just your body. you got to keep your mind sane, too, when you're going to be a little bit of this uh, quarantine stuck, at, stuck inside. And uh, when you're done doing that, you can also head over to Drinks with Johnny on the YouTube um, and hit our YouTube channel and find all of our episodes there. Um, did you like that segue? <laughs> I think if you did, then you should hit the subscribe button here and as well as on the YouTube channel. Um, yeah, we're just, we're here to, uh, entertain you. Um, and, uh, that's what, that's what I'm here for. We actually film, uh, uh recorded this episode rather. We didn't have film on this one. Uh, we re- recorded this one via Skype, uh, back in November actually. Um, and I had the esteemed pleasure of having Mr. Eric Bischoff on the show. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Eric Bischoff is, he used to be the guy running WCW, the wrestling organization, in the mid-90s uh, when they were going up against WWF at the time, Monday Night, Raw, uh, Monday Night Raw, and it was called the Monday Night Wars. And he was responsible for the NWO, for Hulk Hogan turning uh, heel, as the, as the term goes and bringing in the outsiders kevin nash and scott hall amongst other things that he did and kind of shaped a lot of the industry during that time and uh, we get into some of that um he also has a podcast he does with his friend conrad thompson called 83 weeks with eric bischoff it 
is exactly why I asked this guy to be on the show. I went, um, I started listening to this about a year and a half ago. I, I listened to it weekly because um, it just brings me back to the nostalgia, the 90s wrestling that I grew up on. And they cover everything that they go into the business side of everything. There's some really interesting, cool stories. Um, and some of them he even shared here today with me. Um, I hope you enjoy these stories and uh, brings back a little bit of memories from uh, wrestling uh, from the wrestling days. He also was uh, just a, a general entrepreneur, um, and he's he's done a lot of cool things uh, in his life, and we got to touch on that a little bit. Um, uh, I tell a couple of stories of uh, when I met a few uh, wrestlers that he worked with uh, back in the day, um, and some that he's still very close with. Uh, we share some mutual friends. And uh, yeah, it was just a fun chat to have with this guy. Um, again, this is only, we only did audio. Uh, Mr. Bischoff didn't want to be uh, videotaped via Skype, so we just did audio on there. But we did do something a little fun with that over on YouTube. So if you, you, know, you want to listen here, that's great. You could also head over to YouTube and see <laughs> what we put together so that there is a visual to this. Um, I'm not going to do any spoilers. I'm just going to tell you, head over there. And if you like what you see, of course, hit subscribe. Hit subscribe here. Go follow us at Drinks with Johnny on all social media platforms. Um, pretty easy to find. Uh, it's free, and it's a great way to show support of the show for me. Um, just let me know that uh, you're digging what I'm doing. Um, I'm having fun with it. I'm going to do it whether you like it or not. <laughs> so I hope you do. Um, and so without further ado, I bring you Mr. Eric Bischoff. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for listening to another edition of Drinks with Johnny. I am super excited today. I don't know if uh, you at home have been listening very closely. Obviously, I am a huge professional wrestling fan, so this is quite the honor to have my very special guest, Mr. Eric fucking Bischoff. How you doing today, man? I'm doing well, Johnny. Great to be with you, man. Yeah, man. So uh, where are you at uh, in, the, in the world these days right now? I am in uh, a little little city called Dunedin, Florida, just uh, just north of Clearwater Beach. Great, great little community. Just here for the holidays. Going to be taking off around the middle of February, and, or excuse me, middle of January, and uh, hopefully heading back to Wyoming. But who knows? Okay, okay. What what brings you out to uh, that that area of Florida? Uh, our son and daughter-in-law live here. And my wife and I were, uh, we did a short stint up in Stanford, Connecticut. We decided rather than driving back to Wyoming, we'd head south, hang out for the holidays, and then slowly make our way back. Okay, awesome. That's that's great. You're hanging with the family for the holidays. You got to be pretty stoked about that. I am, indeed. It's, right. uh, it's usually tough to do because, like I said, my wife and I live in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, and it's really tough to get to, especially over the holidays. So uh, whenever we have the chance to, to get together as a family, we look forward to it. Oh, yeah, that's great. How's the weather out there? Uh, today, it's a little chilly by Florida standards. It's down to about 58 degrees. I, I kind of dig it. So does my dog, Nikki. We were out, uh, took a long bike ride along the beach this morning and had a great time. Oh, dude, that's awesome. Yeah, so you already mentioned a few things that I kind of already knew the answer to because I have to say the whole reason why I reached out to you, um, obviously for my fandom as a uh, as a child, but more so... 83 Weeks with Conrad Thompson. This is a fantastic podcast you guys are doing together. And I have to say, I have listened to almost everything, every single episode. I think I'm uh, I'm currently in the middle of the Ray Mysterio you guys did a couple weeks ago. And uh, I got to I gotta say, this is a fantastic podcast. It's opened me back up into wrestling. I, I hadn't watched in a while. And now I'm a WWE Network subscriber because, you know, I listen to you guys talk and 
now I go back and I've watched, I've, I've currently already gone through it, I've watched everything from 94 to the end of WCW um, pay-per-views, and I've gone through them all. And uh, uh, I have to thank you for that because it's just been uh, an incredible watch. And I wanted to ask, what was it that made you finally come out and start talking about all these things during the 83 weeks when the head-to-head wars, uh, Monday Night Wars, and, you know, you meet Conrad, who seems like a really cool dude. I haven't had the pleasure yet, but uh, seems like he kind of got you out of the out of the shell. Or, or how did this marriage of this podcast work, basically? Can you walk me through that? Sure. I had uh, <clears throat> I had a podcast previously um, that I did for almost a year with a young man by uh, name of Nick who works over at Wrestling Inc. over at WrestlingInc.com. And... Nick was a super guy, very enthusiastic, uh, worked his guts out, did a great job, but we didn't really get into, because I was hesitant to get into much discussion about the Monday night wars and things of the past, because I honestly, I didn't think the audience would be interested in in talking about it or hearing about it. There's been so much written, there's been documentaries, there's been shoot interviews, there's been books, there's, you know. WWE has done a couple different projects you know, based on the Monday Night Wars. And I just thought, you know what? It's been saturated. No one cares. And Conrad came along and said, look, there's a big market for that era of, of our business. And people still want to talk about it. And it was really Conrad who convinced me to to go that way in terms of the format and talking about the Monday Night Wars. It was really his idea, not mine. Oh, dude. It was incredible. How did you meet Conrad, though? Like you said that he he, he came out and everything. What was your first interaction with him? Well, I had evidently I had met Conrad at a wrestling convention uh, a couple of years ago, and he came up and introduced himself to me. And uh, presumably, he offered me a big chunk of cash to fly out to at, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, where he's got a a big, beautiful home. He's a very successful guy in the mortgage industry that just happens to be a huge wrestling fan. And he invited me; he was willing to fly me out first class, pay me a boatload of money to come and just spend an afternoon hanging out with him and his buddies talking about wrestling. And I, it just caught me as, I don't know, I don't want to say odd. It's not odd necessarily, but yeah. it was unusual for me to, to get an offer like that. And I, I turned it down. Um, okay. I'm not a very social animal by nature. I tend to be a bit of a loner and don't generally hang out with large groups of people that I don't know real well. So I, I politely, I hope politely turned it down. <laughs> And then about a year later, uh, a good friend of mine, Bruce Pritchard, called me and said, hey, this guy Conrad flew me down to his house, put me up, it was great, spent the afternoon, treated me great, because you should really do it. You'll have a blast. So I said, all right, well, I trust Bruce's judgment. And uh, he put me back in touch with Conrad. And about a year after his first offer, I flew out to Huntsville, hung out with him at his home and had a great time. And that, that was really when I met Conrad, as far as I can remember, the first time, because I don't remember meeting him at a convention. Oh, that's incredible. So, like, the whole um, mortgage thing, I didn't realize how, how, how big he was on that. I thought he was just, uh, you know, uh, this big fan that um, was creating these podcasts with everybody, and that's how he was getting his money. But you're, you're telling me now that that mortgage thing, he was already – he already had a bunch of money, and he was uh, – uh, just a huge fan, right? That's that's basically what no, he's he, he's he's an extremely successful uh, mortgage banker. 
has close to 200 people working for him. He oh, operates wow. in 40, 40 different states. He's doing. He was doing extremely well before he ever got into the podcast. That's business. incredible because when you when you hear him on all the different podcasts too, but specifically the one that I listened to, 83 Weeks, he just seems like such a down to earth guy. You know, you wouldn't expect that. You, he, I mean, he just sounds like, you know, as he as he describes, just a fan that that remembers, you know. Uh, wrestling in the in the mid '90s, early '90s, late '80s, you know, and it's just, that's well, just incredible. You know, it's you know, being a down to earth guy and a very successful person doesn't necessarily have to be a binary choice. You know, you can, you can be <laughs> yeah, a down to earth right. guy and, and still be a wrestling fan, and oh, by the way, still be hugely successful. So yeah, uh, he, but he's a very very smart. I call him a young man because compared to me, he's young. <laughs> but at 38 years old, he's probably one of the most successful people that I've met. Um, in terms of owning his own business and, and starting as young as he did, he's a very successful guy. And he's he's really smart. He's worked hard and he's smart. Yeah, no, and and part of the the other thing that I found uh, that I gravitated towards your guys' podcast together was the just the fact that he is such he is so close in age uh, that I am. So when he references things that when he was a fan and you know when he you know took a break from his fandom and everything it was me and him kind of aligned exactly with it and um that's what i want to get into next so you know um uh you come in and i remember seeing you for the first time on uh wcw uh as like a, sort of an announcer one of the color guys everything like that and uh I remember, you know, just going, oh, that's that's another guy on there. And then lo and behold, years later, you come out and you're the, you know, you're the guy, you're the head honcho running everything. And and then, you know, shortly after NWO happens, everything like that. But before that, you bring in Hulk Hogan, who you uh, had said on the podcast is actually a really good friend of yours, um, which I think is really, really fucking cool. How did you first meet Hogan? Well, I first met him... Um Really, when I was running WCW, we were uh, taping some episodes down at the Disney MGM Studios in Orlando, Florida. And while we were there, Hulk was also filming a television series called Thunder in Paradise. Mm -hmm. So we were both, you know, in close proximity and had a lot of mutual friends and acquaintances and so forth. And, you know, the word got out that I was there and I, you know, word got back to him that I'd, you know, love to talk to him about possibly jumping ship over to WCW. And, a couple days later, I got a phone call at my house and said, hey, next time you're down in Orlando, let's get together. And that's kind of what started it all. Okay. So once you guys were working together, that's when you became close because obviously you right, guys are close now. Right. Okay. I wasn't sure if there was a relationship before that. So I actually have a story about uh, the first and probably I think it's the only time I ever met Hogan and it's a huge foot in your mouth kind of moment. I wanted to, say, <laughs> wanted to share it with you. Um we were out in Vegas uh, years ago. Uh, my band, Avenged Sevenfold, um, just started to gain some success, and we were hanging out at the Palms Casino. Uh, there was a, a concert going on, you know, and uh, there was all these suites around and everything like that, and we were told we are sharing a suite with Hogan and his wife, Linda, at the time. And uh, we're like, oh, that's awesome. Okay, got to play it cool. This is Hogan. I'm growing up, you know, Hulkamania, the whole nine yards. And I walk in and try to play it cool by like saying, oh, hi, and then grabbing a bottle of vodka. And the look on his face when I was sharing that bottle of vodka made me think that I wasn't really supposed to be there. <laughs> and someone had, had pulled a prank on me. Um, and I never saw him after that. But our singer got a picture with him and everything like that. And I was wondering, um, does that sound like uh, something Hogan would do, would be sharing a suite with some little fucking rock band? 
Yeah, it does actually. Yeah. And and he may have been unaware as to what the you know accommodations were or the situation was, but you know, Hulk is he is one of the friendliest. And I'm not just saying this because yeah. we're close friends. And and a lot of guys are. I mean, not just Hulk Hogan, but you know, of all of them, Hulk is generally, I think, probably the most outgoing and friendly to just fans and strangers that he would meet. He's a he's a very personable guy. He loves being around people. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it seems like it, but I got the time. I look back, I was probably all of, you know, 21, 22 years old. Well, and- he was with he was with his ex-wife, Linda, and just knowing that time period when they were both kind of hanging out at the Palms, and that would have been probably right before the divorce. Mm-hmm. So he, he might have been just one miserable fuck that day. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. And, I- and, was, and was probably looking at that whole bottle of vodka thinking, I'm going to need that thing to get through this. <laughs> and then you come along and take a pull off of it. He's probably... <laughs> He was, was probably resource guarding. Yeah, is what yeah. He was really I got, doing. Okay, I got you. So I'm glad you could give me that insight. And, and if you talk to him again after this uh, conversation, please let let him know that uh, no, I, I I didn't mean any disrespect. I'm a, you know, big fan. Um, speaking of his time there, uh, uh, and you guys first bringing him in and everything like that, um, I wanted to ask you. You guys did a bash at the beach, 1995, in Huntington Beach, California. Do you remember this? I sure do. Awesome. So you were were you on site for this at uh, pay per view? Definitely was. Awesome. Had you been to Huntington Beach before this? No, I had not actually. Oh wow! Been everywhere else, you know, it's it's funny. I've spent so much time. I actually lived in Santa Monica for a long time. Uh, spent a lot of time in L.A. because I had a you know television production company that was based there. Uh, but you know how L.A. is. You know, you oh, just, L.A. and Orange County are two different things. People who, who, just, who haven't been over here don't understand. They're like, oh, Orange County's L.A. It's like, no, these are two different fucking places. No one wants to yeah, make that commute. Two, two different cultures, two different worlds. But no, yeah. I had not uh, I had not ventured too far out of my uh, my neighborhood. That's awesome. So that's incredible. The reason why I bring it up, because I'm born and raised um, Huntington Beach, California. The rest of the guys in the band the same. We all met each other when we were in grade school, running around here in Huntington Beach. So... Um, I just wanted to ask you, you know, I'm, st- I'm actually doing this podcast for my studio in Huntington Beach. I ended up buying a house here, remodeling, yada, 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 doing the whole thing. I'm, I have no intention of leaving Huntington Beach. So I wanted to ask you, do you have any memories of, uh, of that time in Huntington Beach? I mean, this pay-per-view was huge. I remember as a kid, it was coming through and it was like, Hulk, Hulk Hogan's going to be in my hometown. Now, my father wouldn't, wouldn't let me go down to the beach for a couple of reasons I'm not, I'm not sure that you guys were familiar with, but just a few years removed, we had had uh, 4th of July riots happening on the beach. So a lot of parents were still a little weary about that. Did you guys, were you guys aware of that? And, you know, what was the Honey to Beach vibe you got? Did you enjoy yourself? you have any cool memories? You know, n- uh, not really any memories specifically. And, you know, you have to understand, you know, when we would come in to any market, for a pay-per-view you know the pay-per-views were on sunday we would generally fly in saturday afternoon saturday evening if it was la we'd probably get in there you know the day before but then we'd go right to our hotel and you know your pre-production meetings you know most of the evening or a good portion of the evening and then come sunday you know you got to be on set by 10 o'clock in the morning so you know other than seeing the inside of my hotel and having lunch at a couple restaurants over the 
course of a couple of days, I really didn't see much of Huntington Beach. Okay. The event itself, the event itself, came off great. We had no issues. We had no problem with the crowds or police or unruly behavior. It, it, it came off, you know, all in all, it came off pretty well. Yeah, I remember. I remember it being very well. I mean, I, I, uh, I had begged my father to take me down there. And uh, he was like, you know what, we'll just get the pay-per-view. So I ended up watching the pay-per-view <laughs> just a couple miles away from the, the actual live event happening, which was pretty silly at the time. Another cool thing that I wanted to share with you is uh, where you guys did it was right in front of the Hilton, um, right there uh, off of Huntington Street, actually. Um, and I'm not sure if you remember all these things, but, and I don't expect you to. But funny uh, little note, I did uh, Junior Lifeguards right there and met my current wife when we were 12 years old and proposed to her right at that Tower uh, 9 that you guys were right next to. When you were 12? I didn't propose to her then. <laughs> I met I her when say, I was 12. Well, I proposed yeah, to her when I was 27 as, a, as an homage to the first time I met her. That was, uh, I was going to say, that's some pre-planning right there. <laughs> and it worked out. <laughs> No, but I like how you uh, you mentioned like the you know you're in and out of the city. I was I wasn't sure if you'd spend any time there, um, just because it, you you shared a story that's very similar to uh, our lifestyle on the road. We're in and out. A lot of times people are like, "Oh, how was Europe?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I I, I know what the hotel looked like. I could tell you pretty much that." Yeah, it's like uh, the airports. I could describe just about every airport in Western Europe. I could, <laughs> yeah. I, I can I can rate them on a scale of one to ten in terms of best food courts, yeah. you know, available, all of that good stuff. But you know, it, it's often frustrating because there's a lot of cities that I've you know been to that I haven't had a chance to explore all that much. And I, you know, it's a little frustrating when you get in at eight or nine or ten o'clock at night. You grab a drink, maybe have some dinner, get up, you go to the arena, you work all day, you get back to your hotel around eleven o'clock or midnight, have a cocktail, grab a bite to eat, get up in the morning and fly home. Yeah, and you know, sounds very similar like, to my life on the road. I got, I gotta say. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, San Francisco. I've I've been to. I'm not. Not so sure. I'm really interested in touring San Francisco. <laughs> based on There's a what I've hey, had. you know what, Eric? Next time you go to San Francisco, you you hit me up. I'll I'll meet you out there. There's a few places I could take you. I'm pretty sure you'd have a good time. But I don't think we'd be. Able oh, to, I know. I, I don't know. think we'd be able to tell Mrs. B about it though. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I'm glad I've got your number, number, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So you mentioned a couple of times. Um, uh, it, on your podcast and even just now in this conversation that, you know, you like to uh, crack a beer and have a, have a conversation with a friend or, you know, and, uh, someone you're meeting first time or a cocktail. Uh, two questions. What is your favorite go-to beer and what is your uh, go-to cocktail? Well, my go-to beer, this is going to be a big disappointment to any beer connoisseur that's listening to this, but my go-to beer is Coors Light. Oh, no. Oh I no! Know, right, I, and I say that there's nothing wrong with the silver bullet. I loved it as you know, as a teenager. But you know, you gotta <laughs> grow, you gotta grow up. <laughs> well, the, you know what? When I say go to, it's like if I'm going into a, a restaurant or a bar that I'm not familiar with, and I'll take a look at the beer list, and if they have something that catches my eye, I'll go to that. Gotcha. But I'm I'm pretty particular about the types of beer that I like. And I'm, I'll give you a little bit of backstory. So you yeah, please why. do. Please do. Yeah, I, I grew up in a lower middle income part of Detroit in the 50s and the 60s. And in my neighborhood, in the neighborhood that I lived with my parents, 
everybody would get together on the weekends, all the neighbors, you know, when the weather was decent, and they'd all sit outside and cook burgers or whatever they were doing, and everybody drank a beer called Blatz, B-L-A-T-Z, and that was like the local Detroit cheap beer because that's what people could afford in my neighborhood. They couldn't afford the more expensive beers. And PBR so wasn't out yet, right? Uh, I, don't, I think PBR might have been, but it wasn't It wasn't in my parents' wheelhouse or neighborhood. Gotcha. So it was like Blatt's. There was another one called Carling's Black Label. I feel like a, I've seen a couple of these labels somewhere. Yeah, well, it was a Detroit beer primarily. Stroh's was another one that was a Detroit beer. These were all lower-priced beers, and that's what I kind of cut my teeth on as a kid, sneaking beers, you know, when nobody was looking. And then... I, you know, and I and I tasted it. You know, I'd pull a beer, sneak one, just f- for the fun of sneaking a beer, and I'd take a sip and go, "God, this tastes like horse piss. This is just <laughs> horrible. How could anybody sit and drink a case oh, of this wait, stuff?" Oh wait, real real quick. Well, how how old how old were you when the first time you decided you're gonna you're gonna sneak a beer? Oh, probably eight. Nice, perfect. I uh, I, I appreciate that. All right, seven or eight. Good, somewhere, continue. Somewhere you're, you're, you're you're drinking horse piss for the first time. Yeah, well, and I, it turned me off from beer completely. And then, and I didn't, you know, I didn't really drink, you know, after that. Um, I was too young. None of my friends were into it at that point. And then we moved to Pittsburgh, right, when I was oh. about 13 years old. And same kind of situation. You know, we moved into a little nicer neighborhood. My dad got a little better job. And uh, the, the local beer in Pittsburgh, now, by this time, I'm 13, 14 years old now. Yeah. Sneaking alcohol took on a whole new meaning at that point. Because <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my friends and Finding I, the know, proper we, liquor store that had the that had the doors that opened outward. <laughs> well, no, what we would do, and this is you know, it's funny to talk about now, but you know what we and we lived kind of we lived in the suburbs, and there was a lot of woods around where we lived. So what my buddies and I would do on the, like Friday and Saturday nights, we'd go, we'd call it camping. You know, we'd get our tents and a couple sleeping bags, and we'd go out into the woods. And then, you know, we'd each, like, sneak sneak a couple beers out of our parents' house. My buddies would snatch a couple beers from their parents' house, their neighbor's parents' nice. house. You know, we'd end up, you know, accumulating, you know, half, half a dozen or more beers between the three or four of us. But there was a local beer in Pittsburgh called Iron City. Okay. Which is the, again, a low-end version local beer. And I started liking it a little bit. Now, fast forward, <laughs> I'm a senior in high school. Okay. And I go over for my, my senior year in high school. I was a student exchange student. And I went over to Germany to live with a family in a really, really small town. Oh, shit. You it, went over to Germany for your fucking... Uh, uh, I, I, I love this already. When I was 18, right? Yeah, that's too and, and fun. At, and at that point, I still didn't... I hadn't developed a taste for beer. I, I, I would drink it if I just wanted to cop a buzz with my buddies, but... For the most part, I didn't enjoy it at all. And I would, you know, I would drink, you know, vodka, orange juice or vodka soda. Or you'd have, yeah, you'd have other cocktails at the at the yeah. high school parties and shit. You weren't, you but weren't, you weren't I, but a I beer went, guy. But I, I went to Germany. And in Germany, I know at the time, this was back in 73 when I was a senior in high school. All You know, the, the laws across the United States were 21 and over to buy alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm 18 years old. I go over to Germany with a bunch of my buddies and, and classmates, and you you're can, beyond legal. There there. No, the there Germans, was, the Germans, no don't, yeah, they 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 they're, they're drinking with their yeah, with everybody, it's, and their it, parents are like 14 and getting hammered. It was discretionary. It was up to the bartender. If you were well behaved, they'd serve you. If you yeah. weren't, they won't. 
And anyway, longer, I'm trying to make this story shorter. <laughs> so I get over there and I have my first glass of German beer because what the hell? I'm in fucking Germany. That's what you're that, supposed to absolutely. do. And I took a pull off this beer and I don't remember what kind of beer it was. It was a German local beer and it was just fantastic. It was mouth-watering. <laughs> it had an entirely different flavor to it than the beer. I know you don't remember exactly what kind of beer. Was it was it a lager based or, or, or something like that, or was it? A, yeah, it, it was. It, no, it was a lager. Gotcha. It was a local lager. It fell in love with it, and that kind of that kind of changed me, and I became a beer lover so much so that I, I for a while I brewed my own beer, made and I made a fantastic beer i actually launched a brewing company for a short period of time oh wow and, and brewed my own beer i would love and, to try an eric bischoff beer I, I have to admit i would love to i'd love to see what your take on creating your own beer would be well we're not brewing it any longer i did it for about four or five years and it was just there was no money in it it was kind of like a very expensive hobby is what yeah really no yeah I, I i hear that a lot with it but you know i just mean you know if you if you want to make one again i'll come out and 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 try one of your beers well, it was a it was a rye it was a rye based beer. Oh, so, rye based! Wow. Yeah, I've only had a couple good. of those. Those are pretty interesting. Really good beer. But now there's there's a beer out, and you can only get it, you know, like around Wyoming and Montana where I live. But it's called Cold Smoke, Ooh. and it's a Scottish ale. Cold Smoke. Oh, is it a red ale? I've I've had Scottish red ale. I haven't had just. No, it's not. There. No, it's not a red ale. In fact, okay. it's it, it looks almost like a Guinness if you're looking at it. It's oh, really dark. I've had one of those, actually. I've had something it, similar. Yeah. It was so amazing. And that's my go-to. So when I'm home in Wyoming, I live I live about 90 miles from the Montana border. So about you know once a month or so, I have to go to Montana for something. And I'll end up picking up a case of cold smoke and bringing it back with me. So that's my favorite beer. But when I'm out and about, kind of reflex action, I'll order a Coors Light. Okay, I got you. That, 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 that's still a little interesting. I'm not going to knock you too hard on it. I mean, you know, you're talking about really good beers here that you go to a Coors Light. But I'm, I won't fuck with you too much on that. Um, on, my, on, my cocktail, <laughs> on my cocktail choices, I'm a McKellen 18. Uh, nice. Double McKellen 18 on a rock. Gotcha. Okay, that's, that's, a, solid, that's a solid scotch. Uh, have you been to Scotland very often? I have. Uh, kind of same story. I've been there probably a half a dozen times over the last two years probably have seen more because when i when i tour scotland i usually do one or two tours there a year and we'll do five or six cities okay and maybe not five or six probably three or four cities in scotland and they're all drives so you get to see more of the country absolutely and it, a, it is a gorgeous country uh, i love it yeah it is so awesome there is one thing i can share with you uh um the if you haven't already, the next time you're in Scotland, because I do know that it is all about the hotels and everything like that, you got to stay at this place in Edinburgh. I do not remember the name of it, but if you told anybody it's the Sean Connery Hotel, they will know. Stay in Edinburgh and go down to the Scotch Bar. There is a wall of Scotch and a uh, you know uh, a professional you know Scotch pour at all times there. And when I say a wall, I mean like a fucking library wall. I spent uh, some good coin in that hotel lobby. So next time you're in Scotland, you like scotch, Eric? I really recommend you head over there. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! <laughs> 
How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020. 0-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. I'll I'll definitely be looking at it. And, and Edinburgh is one of my favorite cities, by the way. The last time oh, I was there, so cool. I stayed at a hotel right near the the castle. In oh yeah, the castle up at the top of the hill. I love that spot. Yeah. So I, I I vowed to my wife because I've never I've never brought her over with me to anything that I've done out of the country. Uh, but I told them next time I do a tour of Ireland and Scotland, I'm going to bring her along with, and we'll make a vacation out of it. That's really cool. So you've never brought her out of the out of the country. That's surprising. How long have you been with uh, with Mrs. B? Uh, we've been together now probably 37 years. We've been married 35. Wow. Congratulations! That's incredible. Thank you. Yeah, um, and so she's she's stuck with you through all of it. Yeah, and she's hot. <laughs> she's oh, out as sure. fuck. I, yeah, she's hot. She's hot as fuck. I, she I, was I, out of your definitely. league. You're, she yeah. was out of your league, and you you, yeah. you definitely went up on it, right? Yep. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, you tell her I, I said uh, thanks for putting up with you and keeping you relatively happy. Oh, she does a great job. <laughs> oh no, she keeps you happy. But I mean, like, I, 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 I've heard I've heard you get pretty mad at a couple people. One one would be like Mike Meltzer and stuff like that. That. You know, Dave Meltzer. Dave Meltzer. Sorry. Please don't. There's some poor bastard walking around out there named Mike Meltzer. And you just <laughs> I just buried fucking buried him. him. Buried him. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. Oh, that actually brings me to another thing. I have to get on Conrad a little bit here for not having your back against this Dave Meltzer guy. Sometimes I was a fan of wrestling, a huge fan, and still am. I never was a dirt sheet guy, as you referred to it. I saw the magazines in the you know, local grocery store. And it actually just confused the fuck out of me. I was like, what is this? I don't understand how this has anything to do with the story that I've been watching. And one other thing that you guys brought up on the 83 Weeks was Halloween Havoc 95. You remember this, obviously, because you talked about it, yeah? Oh, yeah. So that, this is the, the famously one that, you know, uh, the giant comes back from the dead after the, uh, the monster truck fight and everything like that, which... You know, a lot of people shit on. I am one of the people that I don't think that it was that crazy of an of an idea. I mean, monster trucks were huge. I remember watching the WWF on Saturday mornings, and what came on right after WWF on Channel 11? It was fucking monster trucks and the Grave Digger. So obviously they knew there was a there was a crossover, and you just kind of keyed on to that point, right? Yep, that was it. You know, the, the monster truck business is and was, uh, even more so then than it is now, a huge, huge business. Same demo, same, same demographics, um, live action, family entertainment, you know, middle income type crowd. Yeah, it makes perfect uh, sense to me. So, yeah, we, we were just trying to uh, find new ways to kind of merge audiences yeah and and again as i said several times it makes perfect fucking sense you got these really cool companies that build like you know for this for what monster trucks are they looked fucking incredible they looked great they looked exactly like what you would see if you went down to here anaheim stadium and watched the monster jam rallies which i do now i've got a son and we take him you know yearly for his uh birthday they're all they're a fucking hoot they're great 
the the reason why I want to get on Conrad just for a second here is he re, he was using Dave's reporting and saying how uh, you know you guys were on top of the arena and when uh, the giant falls off the side of it he's uh, he would have not fallen into the river because the arena you guys were at was uh, uh, at a different spot or, or it was it would have been a parking lot not falling into the river now I want to get on him because he was just reporting what Dave said but he didn't back you up on this because it's factually incorrect if you w go back and watch Halloween Havoc they said the monster track uh, uh, fight was happening on top of the Cobalt Arena, not where you guys were in the uh, Joe Lewis Arena. So the, you, uh, you guys had actually addressed the fact that it was not on top of the arena. So there would have been a river back there. Uh, so when Giant falls to his quote-unquote death, he actually could have survived it. You don't know. He could be a really good swimmer. There you go. <laughs> where were you when i needed you you were 14 years old yeah exactly proposing to your proposing to your soon-to-be wife 14 exactly. years later exactly but i just i just want to let i just want to let conrad know i know he was just uh uh reporting what dave had said at the time but you got to back up eric a little bit more often because that, that that was bullshit right there that was that was that was bs reporting it was it was factually incorrect there was a river behind there and he could have fallen into it there you go. Glad we straightened that <laughs> shit out. You're welcome. You're welcome. Now, I want to get into some more, uh, some other wrestlers I know you're really good friends with. Um, one of them is uh, DDP, Diamond Dallas Page. Um, I'm a big fan of his. I've actually met him a handful of times. Uh, another story where I probably fucked up this friendship as well. Um, he and I met at, a, what was it, Fangoria Awards, you know, some years ago. And he invited us out to his movie premiere. Now, I don't remember what the movie was, but he played some sort of a sheriff. He was getting into the horror movie acting and stuff like that. Do you, you, you seem to be pretty close with him. Do you remember the times when he was, when he was uh, moving into the acting stuff in the early 2000s? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I recall that. And I think the movie that you're referring to was one that he did with Rob Zombie. Could be wrong. I, I, believe, it, I, I believe it was because I, I, I'm pretty sure that that was, that was what was going on there. So shortly after that, we as a band, Avenged Sevenfold, had a, uh, a, live sh uh, a live taping of a show that we were going to do at Long Beach Arena. At the time, this was probably our biggest show. We were going to make it a DVD, everything like that. Diamond gets my number. He hits me up, and uh, uh, I have a conversation with him on the phone. Again, I'm all of 22, 23 years old. And I'm talking to somebody that I used to grow up watching for the very first time. And, you know, this is awesome to me. I'm in some shitty apartment. And, uh, you know, he asked, hey, uh, I, got a, I got a girl, uh, a friend that wants to come to this show. Can you hook her up? I said, of course, whatever you need. Show day comes. We got friends and family all over the fucking place. And I did not get a chance to go out and meet his friend. And I never heard a word back from DDP after that. Uh, do you think that uh, I really just severed all ties with this guy? Mm, nah, he's a very forgiving dude. You know, he, he's, he, he wears his emotions on his sleeve, so I could see him getting a little ass-japped. Okay. But at the same time, uh, he's one of the most forgiving people I've ever met. So he'd probably just, if he heard this story today, he'd probably just laugh, slap you on the back, and make you do yoga. 
Yeah. Well, I'm okay with that. I, I don't know about the the back slap part. I mean, I'm, I'm a smaller guy, and he's got a pretty big fucking hand. It, it probably hurt a bit. But uh, <laughs> I, I always I always liked to like liked his style. Um, uh, another one I want to get into is one of my all time favorites, Ric Flair, and your relationship with him. And uh, yeah, you, you go ahead. Well, I mean, Rick and I have known each other since really 93 i believe is when rick and i first really crossed paths i'd met him you know briefly prior to that but it was i think it was about 93 is when we really first started working together pretty closely and our relationship has evolved over you know the years for a long time uh it was it was a casual professional relationship when i was an announcer there and then once I moved up into management, obviously I started working more closely with Rick, and we became pretty good friends. Um, the period of 93, 94, 95, um, Rick was really instrumental in helping me convince Hulk Hogan to move over to WCW. In fact, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Yeah. Had it not been for Rick, I don't think I would have been able to convince Hulk to make the move. So Rick and I were working very closely at, in 94, certainly to bring Hogan in. When we'd go to Florida, for example, three or four times a year to produce our WCW worldwide syndicated show, not the TBS shows okay. on cable, the syndicated show, we would shoot those shows down in Orlando, Florida. And my family and I would bring my wife and my kids. They were very young at the time. And we'd stay at uh, a hotel on the, on the property called the Yacht Club. Because yeah, it had a really nice pool, it was very kid friendly. Nice. And Rick and him, Rick and his family would do the same thing. And Rick's kids were pretty close in age to my kids, so Rick and I and his wife at the time, Beth and my wife and our kids were all hanging out at the pool, playing together when we weren't working together. We we became very good friends, but you know I was still the boss, and yeah. eventually you know certain issues came up that kind of put us on opposite ends of. Of a spectrum. Gotcha. And yeah. He had, he had to hang on to his position. To I, business, you know. I had to hang on to mine, and, you know, it got kind of ugly and legal and a little bitter, but, you know, we've also been able to put that behind us. And now I would say, you know, Rick is, you know, my, while not my best friend, certainly one of my closest friends in the wrestling business. Someone, yeah, someone we, you could still pick up on the phone. Yeah, someone you could just pick up the phone and still call and, and, and you know, shoot the shit with. Oh, by, by, by all means, yes. That's rad. That's rad. So another, I want to bring up one more mutual friend, I think, here. Um, maybe two, actually. Let's, let, let's get into Chris Jericho first, who is a mutual friend I've known since about 2011. You've known him uh, quite a bit longer, obviously. He, in his book, brought up this no ticking, no laundry thing, and you guys addressed it on, <laughs> on uh, 83 Weeks. <laughs> and uh, uh, I've heard him tell the story and everything like that, and, and it's great. It's great. It's all in good fun. I had no idea no ticking, no laundry was actually a, 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 a coin of phrase back in the day. So when I heard it the first time, I was like, who the fuck says that? And then I brought it up to somebody else of a, you know, a, of a certain era, and they were like, oh, no, that's, that's, that's a coin of phrase. Where, did you know this, that that was a coin of phrase when you threw it out there? Or, or was it like well, something you, you, you think I just made it up? Yes. I mean, at the, when I heard it on 83 Weeks and talking to Jerry, I was like, who the fuck says that? <laughs> so, a lot of people said it. In fact, I think I, I, think I picked it up from a, a, a comedy skit that I had heard. 
I heard a comedian, you know, use it in, in, as part of a skit. So it, it just kind of stuck with me. And <laughs> clearly, clearly Jericho was, you know, surprised that it actually existed because maybe you know, maybe it was more of American things. You know, he came from uh, from up north. Yeah, where? From fucking Winnipeg. There's probably a lot of things he had never heard before coming from Winnipeg. I mean, you've, you've obviously been in Winnipeg quite a few times over the years at this point, right? Uh, no, actually. Really? I think I've been there. Did you I've guys, there you guys tw- didn't do a lot of events out there? No, fuck no. I know there's the- Winnipeg. Well, event Sevenfold does. <laughs> Shh. I've been there. I've been there uh, two or three times, which isn't a lot given we've been doing this for twenty years now. But uh, yeah, it's 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 one of those. You know, let, let's call it a B market and be nice. Look, I love small towns. I'm not knocking Winnipeg necessarily, but it, and I probably would love going there in the fall or maybe in the summer. But I spent twenty years living in Minnesota. It's yeah, cold as fuck in minnesota <laughs> you know i love minnesota what? though but you, you guess, gotta go back there what? it's fucking fantastic guess what winnipeg is colder than minnesota oh fuck yeah everywhere so. up, everywhere in canada is colder it's it's in, it's insane when, when you get in the winter months there they're the smartest people though eventually <laughs> i don't know that it was like this because they all ago. come to florida <laughs> <laughs> Snowbirds. Or like Jericho, or Jericho. You say, oh, yeah. no, it's Winnipeg. Have you been out? I'm going to buy a home in Florida. You're in Florida right now. Do you think you're going to go stop by his place? Have you Have you been out there before? I have not, but I actually have to reach out to Chris later today to get some information about the cruise that I'm scheduled to be on yes. uh, in January. Let's talk about that. Yeah. That's a perfect segue in. You're, you're going to do this cruise. This is the first time you're doing this cruise, right? Right. Okay, and uh, so do you have any idea what to expect, or did he just like say, hey, Eric, you want to do this? And you said, yeah. No, he said, hey, do you want to do it? And I first said no, because I was just being a bitch. I was just, I was, (laughs) when he reached out. He caught you on a bad day. (laughs) Well, he did, actually. When they reached out to me to ask me to do this thing, I was literally uh, sitting back in a middle seat, about three rows from the toilet, the back of an airplane. Um, I had. Wow. I had a first class seat and all the flights were canceled and the only seat that I could get was this middle and I was flying coast to coast. I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because I didn't want to be rude and I was like, Really, Eric? That's that's how you're traveling these days. <laughs> no, no. It, but you know, I, I was dying to get back home and I had to take a flight. I said, All right, I'll put up with it. And it's not that you know, I'm not a prima donna and I'm not like I'm that big of a guy. I'm you know, 5'11", 215, 220. So I'm not a you know, I'm not like a wrestler. I don't need all yeah. the extra space. But I've been you know, I probably got seven million air miles, you know, under my belt. I just I hate it. I hate flying commercially. Yeah. Well, especially I, well you 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 piloted a bit too, right? Are you right, a, yeah, a I don't mind flying pilot? the Yeah, I was for a long time. But anyway, I'm sitting in this plane, and I, I, on my right, I got this fat lady that must have weighed 280. <laughs> she's she's snoring and drooling and making uh, funny animal sounds. To BPC, I'm sure she was be- a beautiful 280. <laughs> yeah, whatever. whatever. <laughs> and th- and then the guy on my lo- on my on my left was just about as big, and I'm stuck in the middle, you know. And I'm no you know I'm no athlete, you know I'm. A little on the pudgy side, so you know I'm stuck in the middle, and I'm, this is fucking horrible. And then I get a text said, "Hey, you want to go on a cruise?" 
going, fuck that. No. I don't want to be around cruise. more people like this. If I, have to get, if I have to get on an airplane in order to go on that cruise, I'm not going. I was just that, sh- I was in that shitty of a mood. But what, changed, about, your, what changed your mind? Oh, I thought about it. I thought, wait a minute. Chris is a guy who volunteered to kind of be the, uh, the host between a debate, the moderator, in a debate between Bruce Pritchard and myself about the Monday Night Wars. And Chris just showed up. He did it for free. He just did it because we're friends and he wanted to do it. And, uh, and it dawned on me about three days later after I turned them down. I said, what a jackass you are for turning this. Here's a guy that did me a solid. It wouldn't even take you know money for it. Just wanted to do it for the fun of it. And I'm being a bitch because I was second coat between two <laughs> things. So, That's a fucking perspective, though. I'm glad that you were able to see that. So I, I called Chris back and apologized. I said, Chris, I'm sorry. I got a case of the ass. I was just in a horrible fucking mood, and angry at myself and angry at the world. And I'd love to do your cruise if, it's, if, if the invitation is still open. So that's where we're at. That's awesome, man. No, no, I, I love hearing that because, you know, Chris is a great guy, as you know. Um, I'm sure you guys had your differences as well. With, I mean, we just talked about Flair. You know, you're still the boss at some point, and you know, uh, your your uh, conversation or, or your guys' relationship has already been chronicled. You get everyone listening. You could go to 83 weeks, and you could actually find where they specifically chronicle uh, Eric's and Chris Jericho's relationship before and after he uh, moves over to the WWF at the time. So we won't belabor that that point. But I will say to this day. Chris is one of the craziest workers I've ever seen in my life. I, I am convinced at this point that he has cloned himself because there's no fucking way you can be at this many different places at the same fucking time. He's, he's making the most of what he's built for himself, and he's done such a fantastic job. He's reinvented himself, you know, half a dozen times over oh, yeah. the last 10 years, I think. And each time he does, the new version is more interesting than the old version. And that's... You know, that's saying a lot. A lot. People, that's saying a, a lot. lot of people too. Tr- a lot of people try to reinvent themselves, find a new character, find a new style, get a new gimmick, whatever. But Chris has been able to, you know, reinvent himself and improve upon the previous version every time he does. He's really, really a talented guy. Yeah. Have you seen um, a, a lot of his AEW stuff? Obviously, this is, uh, you know, a hot topic in the wrestling world right now. They're, what are they, in like eight weeks so far? And uh, they're, they're doing really well. Um, and you know, in retrospect, uh, I, I heard the podcast, uh, you did a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, it's all in retrospect and I thousand percent agree, but the fact that they're, they're doing it and he's got this little champion thing going with a little bit of the bubbly. Are you familiar with all this stuff? Are you, have you watched I that am. closely? Yes, I am. Yeah. So, I mean, what is, what is your take on AW? We don't need to go into the business aspect or anything like that, but just as you know, at some point you were, and I don't know if you still are, but you, you had to have been a, a professional wrestling fan uh, to get into that industry. So, I mean, as, as the fan, if you can take yourself out of it, what do you think about the AEW? Um, I, I'm, I'm impressed, first, first and foremost. It's the first word that comes to my mind, yeah, number one, good. I'm impressed. Um, but the business side of me, and I, I guess this, not cynical, but experienced side of me <laughs> that, that just you know kind of stays on top of the realities of not only the wrestling industry but the television industry the entertainment yeah, industry in tough. general it's tough is is morphing and evolving so quickly in so many different ways that it's it's hard for me to 
see right now how AEW is going to be successful in the long term, just based on what I've seen so far. Now, they may have a great five-year plan. They may be ahead of schedule. There's so many things I don't know. But if your sole revenue traditionally in, in the wrestling industry, you know, you've got four or five pretty healthy streams of revenue that support your business model. Mm-hmm. Right now, all we're seeing out of AEW is television and pay-per-views. Okay. Yeah. And the television side of their business is not generating any revenue. I don't know that as a fact, but I'd be willing to bet an awful lot of money that they're losing money in terms of producing television right now, which is to be expected, by the way, for a new yeah. company. No, that I mean that's I mean you could you could say that about any show that's starting off for if any genre, you know. If, if you're losing money though on your television and you're not able to mitigate those losses by generating enough revenue on the pay-per-view side, which I doubt they're doing, then the only thing you have left is your licensing and your merchandising, which is generally about 25% of a healthy business model for wrestling, uh, and your live events. Gotcha, yeah. They don't really have live events. So if you don't have really any significant licensing and merchandising, if your pay-per-views are still in the early stages and not generating you know, five or six million dollars a month, and if you don't have any live events, no, I, I, I hear, I hear all that. I hear all that, and you know, you know more. I mean, fuck, you've been through more of this side of things than I could even, you know, uh, sniff a nut at. Uh, uh, you know, it's, but I, I have to say, where they came from was from um, this streaming um, idea, and before they even got the TV show and everything like that, so. My question is, uh, do you, I mean, you, you know the WWE Network, how they're doing their streaming thing, and I'm not going to compare AEW to that, but do you see where they, there's a place where they could utilize where they came from in the streaming world to, uh, you know, bring up some of that revenue? Because, I mean, you look at Disney+, Plus, you look at all these different, everything's going streaming. No one's going to have a satellite. No one's going to have a cable in the next, you know, five to ten years. To be honest, it's not going to happen. Everyone's going to stream and you're going to have to buy subscriptions to all these different fucking places. It's going to be annoying for the customer, but it's going to be great for the person putting it out there because they're going to get this monthly revenue. Do you see that uh, that helping AEW by being a new company? I do. I do. And early on, when I heard about AEW's plans, before they were made official and there was a lot of rumor and so forth about television, I, I privately, in a, in a conversation I had with someone to remain unnamed at this point, mm-hmm. uh, my suggestion was they don't do TV and focus solely on their streaming platform. Now, their their streaming success came from YouTube, yeah, which they don't own. They have no control over, and you're at the whim of YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> this show this show started out on YouTube too, and uh, you know I just enjoyed doing it, so I just moved it over to the podcast. <laughs> well, if if you remember a couple of years ago, YouTube came out and said, "Okay, we're no longer going to allow anybody to monetize anything to do with wrestling." Yeah, and everybody was you know in a panic. Well, that that abated, and things were modified, and you could still find content, including mine, on YouTube. Uh, but you don't if you don't own that platform, if you're not in control of that platform, you're not really monetizing it as as best you can. And my thought was if I had the kind of resources that uh, the Khan family, 
presumably has invested in this, mm-hmm. I would put all of my resources into streaming and and not television because television is just a tough way to make money in today's environment. Yeah. The, the networks that are, you know, that have cable television on, and I don't know. Again, there's so much I don't know. I don't know what the business deal between A&E and, and TNT or Turner Networks are, but if you don't have a television partner that's got a long-term view and a long-term plan and you're forced into a position of having to justify the primetime real estate that you live off of and you're not really drawing the numbers the ad you know that, that excites the advertising community you may or may not have a TV a year TV deal a year or two years yeah. from now. No, no, and that I, makes I sense. think if they would have put all of their resources into owning their own streaming platform versus relying on YouTube, that would have been my first move. I would have looked. At, I would have looked at television after I had built up my own streaming platform because it's just going to make you. It, it'll make you a more valuable and attractive partner. Okay, I mean that that, that makes sense. Yeah, I I I, I could hear that, and you know, uh, you know, was, uh, others would be uh, would side with. Okay. Well, they did it on YouTube. Now they're doing it on TNT. When they go do the network thing again, maybe that all of that has been a plan to build it. You know what I and mean? That, and that very well. That's why. That's why I preface everything by saying I don't, don't know, know the plan. Yeah, <laughs> plan. They, they, they may be they may be two years ahead of their plan, and I don't even know it. So yeah, I, no, that's this, incredible. This is, not, this is just an observation without any information. Yeah, no, and I appreciate. It. I, and I, I I hope that everyone else does when you when you do speak on this. I know you speak on this. Uh, you know, probably pretty frequently. Everyone wants to know. You know, who, you know, who do I want to ask about this? Eric fucking Bischoff, who actually went head to head with the WWF and won 83 weeks straight, not to mention all the other weeks that they won as well. So, you know, you, you would be, I could imagine a source that would be uh, frequently asked about this question. Another thing I want to ask, though, is you recently, and I don't know if you want to touch upon this and we can edit it out later, but I just want to know as a, a you know, as a fan you were recently with the WWE, but it was so brief. I, I just curious, what the fuck happened there? <laughs> um, yeah, I was there for about four months in total. Um, what happened? You know, no, nothing in particular. You know, okay. there wasn't an, there wasn't an incident. There wasn't a, you know, we didn't have a head to head confrontation with anybody. It was, you know, I think from my perspective, look, clearly Vince McMahon, WWE didn't get what they had hoped to get out of me. Okay. And that's and that's fair. Yeah. Um I get that. You know, on my side of the equation, the chemistry really I don't know it's hard to say this without sounding bitter or angry because I'm neither. <laughs> but you just worried how it's going to be taken. <laughs> you know, look, you well p- partly, you know, but more importantly I want to say it correctly to, yeah. to express how I really feel about it. Um I mean, you're in the music business. Mm. You know that if you've got how many people are in your band? Uh, there's there's five of us. Okay, there's five of you. I'm, I would imagine for the most part the chemistry's pretty good in your band. Yeah, well, we as, and, as I as I said before, we grew up here in Huntington Beach. We've known each other since you know we there there's uh, <laughs> we if any egos start to get out of control, we we know how to bring each other right back down. Well, for me, it's it wasn't even really an ego thing. It, okay. But if if you're going to be as good as you could possibly be creatively, if you're going to bring that extra, if I'm, I'll I'll say I instead of 
you or one. Yeah. But if, if I'm going to be my best in a creative situation, the chemistry's got to be there. Oh, absolutely. Huge, and huge if the part chemistry, of it. If the chemistry's not there, neither is 50% of the equation. So I, for me, I think more than anything, it was just chemistry. It just, it, you know, when, it's When like you say like the, chemistry it, of who you were working with, who were you working with uh, directly? Is it, is it, I was never really clear on what your position was going to be there. Well, my position, as it was defined on paper, was to be the executive director of SmackDown, which essentially meant, meant I, 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 I oversaw every aspect of everything that had anything to do with SmackDown, from T-shirts and merchandise to advertising to public relations to marketing. Obviously, creative was a big part of that, uh, even to, to a lesser extent, the live event side of the SmackDown brand. Okay. So well, that, that makes to, sense. I, and, I, and I was, again, I, the only part that I knew as an outsider was the creative part of it. And I, I was excited because I was like, okay, here we go. We got, we got Eric Bischoff going to stir some shit up again. Who was it that yeah, you but, were no, like, but, having? Yeah, but, yeah. Well, look, Vince McMahon, a, 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 anything that you see, read, hear, mm. or otherwise experience through your senses is filtered directly through Vince McMahon. Gotcha. Everything. And Vince's vision or what makes sense to Vince wasn't necessarily something that always made sense to me and vice versa. Yeah. And you just get a sense that eh, this just isn't going to work, you know, I, I, and without sounding like I'm criticizing their product, you know, I said this before I got hired and they hired me anyway, and I'll say it after I've been fired because I've got nothing to lose. <laughs> The the product itself is pretty bland. The the filter by, through which all things WWE are filtered through hasn't changed in about ten or fifteen years. Well, they haven't had any, they haven't had any reason to yet. That's that's another reason why I get excited. I, I know it's far off, but the AEW just because well, they haven't had and and you're right. I've heard you talk about it before. There's probably it, it's still an off. Sh it's really an off chance that they'd be able to push them to change anything. Well, and yeah, but in order for look at it this way, uh, and again, this is you know going to sound like me patting myself on the back, and I'll apologize in advance. <laughs> but but WWF, it took them three two years really to react to Nitro. Yeah, and they didn't even really start to react until after the NWO got hot in '96 and '97. And that's when Vince was forced, literally forced, to change everything about his vision for wrestling. Keep in mind that before Nitro, and let's let's say let's say before NWO specifically, because mm -hmm. that's really what changed. That's that is absolutely. Vince McMahon's product was targeted towards kids. Mm -hmm. They were all very cartoonish, animated, kind of over the top characters. Their target audience intentionally was kids 6 to 11. They were happy with the preteen, teen audience as well because most of their business model was targeted towards that demographic. And it made sense. Um, I mean, they were on Saturday mornings uh, for the most part. Uh, Raw was on Monday night, but it wasn't uh, as prominent as, uh, as a syndication as the w WWF Superstars was on Saturday morning where the 6 to 11 kids were watching. And once the NWO changed things and 
in Nitro changed things. Look, when when we launched Nitro, we launched a live format against a tape format. Yeah, you know, we 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 did things that had never been done before. We you know we created big surprises. I was giving away their finishes on the live show. I was creating a lot of controversy that was very effective. In terms let me of let me thank you again for all that because it it it, it re rejuvenized my uh, my love for wrestling at that point. Well, it, it just it woke people up and it got people talking, and then people were forced to check us out to hear what all the buzz was about. And when they did, they came, they saw, they liked what they saw, and they stayed. Yeah. But we literally changed almost everything about the wrestling business for a period of about two years before WWE finally woke up and said, "Okay, we've got to shift gears. We've got to follow that lead." Yeah. And they did. Right now, AEW isn't doing anything that would suggest anything differently than the than currently really than the WWE. There's some minor change. There's some minor differences. Well, one of the ones that I like the best is the unscripted nature of their, you know, their promos, and they don't yeah. sound they don't sound as you know uh, manufactured and sterile and, and I, I, I I agree with that a thousand percent. That is a breath of fresh air to see that again and and letting the uh, the talent kind of create their own characters again, um, as well as I'll say one thing about it uh, that I think hope I'm I'm just hoping here by the way, and I have nothing against the WWE. I I don't have a fucking horse in the race here, but I just hope that uh, the AEW is going to continue doing more of the '90s look of wrestling, where it uh, it was a little bit racier, late '90s I'll say, um, because it. That's the one thing that, like, although I love the family aspect of it and everything like that, but I loved the racy characters. I loved, I loved everything being like tongue in cheek at all the, at at all points, and that was something that I really gravitated towards. Even before the era, that was I, I watched WCW when Ric Flair was being racy in in nineteen ninety one, you know, and it was it was awesome. Yeah, I think the challenge today, though, and again, this goes back to streaming versus television. The challenge that you have today, though, is is even in AEW's case, I think they're TVMA, right? Which gives them more latitude and, and prime time to do a little edgier stuff. But you can't go too far or advertisers will turn their backs on you. So, you know, you want to make yeah, the show edgy. You, you want to make it contemporary. You want to target your show to that 18 to 49-year-old male demo. All those things are things that advertisers want you to do. But if you step over certain lines, especially because it's wrestling, wrestling is in this weird category all uh, uh, unto yeah. itself. It's Absolutely. not really, it's not a drama, but it is. It's not a sport, but it, but is. it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a sitcom, but, but it, it is. is. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just all these things that it isn't, but it also kind of is. Oh, yeah. But, but, so all those things are the reasons why I love it because you can. It is all those things rolled into one, and you know, a lot of times you you know, you know, part of the reason why I stopped watching for a second, the same way Conrad did, is you 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 discover girls at a certain age, and uh, the, uh, most of the hot ones. I won't say all the hot ones, but back in the '90s, most of the hot ones did not give two shits about professional wrestling. So you didn't really watch much of it at the time. I I, I, I beg to differ, young man. But. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying that at a teenage in the in the '90s. I'm not saying. <laughs> I, you're, not I, talking, you're not talking about thirty year old ring rats. You're talking about teenage girls. Yeah, I'm talking about teenage girls and oh, okay. uh, and other. Yeah. yeah, no, no, no. I I've 
I've been around enough wrestlers now and, and, and the industry and stuff to see, uh, oh, there is some fantastic-looking professional wrestling fans out there. We talked about Huntington Beach and uh, wrestling at the time when you were there. Um, it was shortly after that Dennis Rodman, another mutual friend, um, uh, joined WCW. And it was Brown, right before NWO, actually, he was out with Hulkamania colors. Um, how did that come out? Was that was that all Hogan, or did you have an influence in that? Or was it Hogan just says, hey, I got this, I got this guy, he wants to jump in. It made sense for you, because uh, obviously he was a huge celebrity. Or did you find him and introduce him to Hogan? No, actually... Um and I'm not sure how the initial meeting came about between Hulk and Dennis, but Hulk and Dennis either talked on the phone or met each other at some point and hit it off. And Hulk called me. Uh, I remember where I was, I had a meeting at the uh, airport Marriott in Atlanta and I just walked in, it was a dinner meeting and I just walked in to meet a couple uh, people that I was working with at Turner and my phone rang and it was Hulk. So I, you know, I grabbed it right before I sat down to dinner and he said, hey, man, you know, Dennis Rodman? I said, yeah, I kind of know. I don't know him, but I know who he is. Everyone knows who he is. <laughs> he goes, hey, he, 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 he wants to get in the business. He wants to jump in. So I, I called Dennis the next day, and I had a meeting with his manager um, and met Dennis, I think, in Chicago a couple of days later. Uh, he was practicing for a game, so I went down to meet him right before practice, and we hit it off and did a deal. And now, is that someone that you uh, are still talking to? I mean, like, what was your relationship? Was it pretty much all business, or did you guys hang out? No, we hung out quite a bit, actually. I, I, Dennis Rodman, you know, controversial character, to be sure, complex guy. He's got his demons. It's not a secret. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, you know, I've gotten to know Dennis pretty well. I'm not going to suggest we're close friends, but we're close enough that I've had some very, you know, one-on-one -on -one normal conversations with him. Uh, Dennis is probably one of the kindest, most generous people you'll meet. I, I would a, a thousand percent agree. He's, um, I guess, almost vulnerable in a way because he is such a nice guy and he's, he, he's had a lot of people take advantage of him over the years. And it's so unfortunate, man. When you see it, I, I would agree with you. When you see it, it's just like the... You know, growing up, you you have one. Uh, for me, I had one uh, aspect of what I thought he was, and then to come to meet him and know him a little bit, um, it, it is it's unfortunate that people take advantage of someone who is, you know, just so genuine and just trying to be nice and to everybody and doesn't have a you know a sore bone in his body. He really doesn't. He no. doesn't. And he's and he's a and he's a very intelligent guy. No, you know, when you sit yeah, down and talk not, to him about. Yeah. If you're going to talk to him about basketball or wrestling or what, what, all the topics that people always probably want to talk to him about, he's going to give you the same answers that I probably give people if they meet me on a plane and want to talk about wrestling. You kind of go to your yeah, I'm standard. That's you're, what everybody does. Anybody that's that, you know that gets the questions asked multiple times, us in the band, you do the same thing. You know. Yeah, you reach in your bag of answers and you pull out the appropriate ones and. Hopefully the conversation doesn't last too long, right? But <laughs> and you if, don't mean to be rude. It's just the, this is the way it we is do what it is. Yeah. But Dennis is one of those guys. If you sit down and have a conversation with him about politics or media in general mm -hmm. or 
or anything. He's a very articulate and very intelligent, introspective guy. Absolutely. But, you never, but he's also very shy. And sometimes that shyness, especially when he's out, it comes across a little different, especially mm-hmm. because he's Dennis Rodman and he has a reputation. But he really is a he's a sweet guy. He's fun to hang out with. He's got a great sense of humor. Yeah, he's almost and, it's, it's it's almost as if he's he's I, I I hate to pin this on it, but it, it's almost kid like. But just because he's he's been screwed around so many times, but he's still maintaining like even today he's still maintaining that uh, he's just gonna be a good person whether or not he's been screwed over this many times and open his heart and uh, I think that's commendable. I mean. You can disagree with his politics and the way he's done things, you know, however you want. But you cannot deny what a nice person that guy is. No, super guy. Yeah. So I'm glad you had that. And then I wanted to ask, do you have any <laughs> – I don't know how I'm going to transition to this, but do you have any uh, uh, one of the crazier Rodman stories that, uh, you know, we we could all share um, where you said you you did hang out with him quite often? Was there, you know – how was it like traveling with Dennis Rodman in, you know, 95 to 98? I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. No, no, no. I'm not <laughs> expecting you to. <laughs> but, but I'll, I'll, give you one, I'll give you one standout moment that I, I probably won't feel bad for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, no. I, I understand how, how, how it goes. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not putting anyone under any buses at this point. When uh, there was one or ourselves, point, there was there was one uh, there was one point we were doing something with Dennis and uh, we were traveling from Tampa, I think, over to Jacksonville or Orlando or something. We're we're crossing a good chunk of Florida. Let's put it that way. And Dennis, one of the things that Dennis wanted was a, a tour bus. He didn't want to fly. He didn't want to drive in a car. He wanted mm-hmm. a bus. So we got him a bus. In fact, I think. I don't want. I don't want to say this because I'm not even sure it's true. But <laughs> some, so someone told it to me, but it was presumably it was some country music stars um, tour bus. So it was a really really nice tour bus. So we we jump in the bus and we leave Tampa. We do a couple shows or there was a couple stops along the way. One of the nights we were I think we were in Orlando, and the show was over, and Dennis wanted to go to a strip club. So we we took the bus and couple of security guys and a couple of the wrestlers came along and I don't remember the name of the club we went into this club and we're all sitting there having beers and you know we look around and Dennis is gone go, where the hell did Dennis go oh, one minute he's there and the next minute he's gone so we're looking all over we call out to one of the security guys that were assigned to him and on the walkie-talkie and said hey you got eyes on Dennis he said oh yeah he's in his bus so oh, okay cool yeah. well that's Let's get going. It's like one o'clock in the morning. It's time to leave. We had miles to cover. So I go out to the bus. Security guy says, you sure you want to go in there? I said, yeah. So he opens up the door, and it looked like a scene out of the movie Caligula. Oh, I'm it, not familiar with this movie. You're going to have to describe it a little bit better. Uh, Google it. <laughs> <laughs> I will. As soon as we're done with this, this is the first thing I'm going to do is look at Caligula. <laughs> Yeah, it, it it was uh it was a sight. <laughs> what was you were a kickboxer for a while, right? Um, right. What, and then you went into acting before you became the head honcho at WCW. What was 
what was your passion through everything? Like what, and even today, what is your passion that like, that, that drove you through this life from kickboxing to, you know, professional wrestler, CEO? Um, well, my passion has always been to make money. <laughs> and, and The American and to, dream. <laughs> and, and, and to try new things. And I'm, I, I was an entrepreneur probably from the day I was born. Um, mm-hmm. When I was a kid growing up in Detroit, you know, I got my first job probably when I was eight or ten years old. Um, when I was old enough to get a paper out, I got a paper out. By the time I was old enough to get a job at 13, 14 years old in retail, believe it or not, I got a job in retail. Wait, 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 wait. Before you go any further, what was your retail job? I worked for a company in Detroit that uh, sold in-ground swimming pools. Okay. Uh, and also during the holiday season, Christmas season in particular, they sold Christmas trees in their parking lot. So I, I originally got a job there during the Christmas season uh, selling Christmas trees and loading them into people's cars. Ah, that's great. Uh, that's fantastic. I did well enough that at the end of the Christmas season, after you know Christmas came and went, the guy actually hired me to work inside the pool store. So you know my job was essentially to uh, keep the place clean, you know, greet customers when they came through the door until the salespeople could get a hold of them, and you know that type of thing. But I, I worked there. I think that was my first legitimate job at the age of around thirteen or fourteen. Dude, that's rad. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a different time, different culture. Yeah, it really but, but is. back to the the transition. Oh yeah, sorry, go back. Uh, so the so the the you know a big part of me has always been to try new things, build new things, find a new way of doing something. Uh, I was also fairly uh, active athletically throughout high school, junior high school, high school, even into college. Uh, I wrestled uh, in high school. It was never very good. I was probably. Uh, on a good day, I was, you know, a 50-50 kind of performer. But, you know, I made the varsity team, and, and I enjoyed it. You know, I wasn't the best at it, but I enjoyed doing it. Uh, and even after high school, I continued to wrestle as uh, as an amateur in the Greco-Roman and freestyle divisions of post kind of post-high school okay. competition. So I did that for a while and then got into martial arts. I had previously dabbled in it a couple times as a kid, but wasn't able to keep up, you know, lessons and things like that because I couldn't afford it. But once that changed, as I got a little older, I really kind of threw myself into martial arts. Uh, got my black belt in 1979. It was pretty Damn. active through that time, and then I fought for a couple years after I got my black belt and just realized, you know, it's a hobby. It's fun. I enjoy getting in there and kicking people in the head and. All that good stuff. But, <laughs> I'm going to watch was, out for that. The, there's going to be some point, Eric, that we're going to run into a bar together and remind me not to ask you to kick me in the head. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> and, and, unless you were sitting on the chair and not looking, I wouldn't have any success. <laughs> it's, it's not like riding a bike, let's put it that way. <laughs> That's fantastic. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, make sure you're subscribed and leave us a five-star review. If you want to listen to this show ad-free, head over to drinkswithjohnny.com and become a premium member. You'll get to enjoy unreleased clips from your favorite guests, discounts on merchandise in our shop, and access to our private Discord server where you can chat one-on-one with Johnny Christ himself. Awesome! So stay tuned, stay thirsty, and stay filthy as fuck. 
<laughs> but, I, you know, I, I kind of kept that going. And then uh, around that same period of time or shortly after that, I I was a sales manager for a food processor. Uh, okay. I had, to, I had to actually make some real money. Couldn't try to make a living kicking people in the head. So I took a job as a sales manager. And right about that same time, I ran into somebody who said, hey, you could be a model. I was living in Minneapolis at the time. Okay. And I thought, why would I want to do that? And they said, God, you can make like 75 bucks an hour. Well, that's a, that, that's a reason to do it. What? You know, this is like 19. Had you never seen a mirror before that, though? I just want to, I just got to ask it's just, It just didn't occur to me. <laughs> so what, what, once I said 75 bucks an hour, I said, okay, now you got my attention. So I did a couple tests and a couple different photo shoots. And lo and behold, I started getting booked. Not a lot. You know, just bit bit things here and there. Do you think it was your your which attribute do you think out of your headshots was the most the most that you would attribute to uh, getting success through modeling and acting? I don't know. I I, I really don't. I'm gonna give um, you a couple a couple. I'm gonna give you A, B, and C. You give me <laughs> you give me your answer off of that because I know it's hard to evaluate yourself. But think about what you know. We're looking at mid to late 80s. Was it your hair, your eyes, or your smile? Uh, probably eyes and smile. I disagree. I, I, it's I, that, I would, it's got to be that fucking hair, man. That, that Your hair has been on point for so many goddamn years. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the one, it's one thing that doesn't get fat. <laughs> <laughs> and if it does, it's a good thing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So you're so you're doing that, and then and then uh, you're doing your, you're you're getting jobs for your modeling and, and everything. Yeah, I did that, and then the fact of the matter is, while I, while I was involved in martial arts and, and active and competing and all that, I had met a guy by the name of Sonny Ono, mm-hmm. who Sonny was almost the same age as I am, but you know I grew up in Detroit, he grew up in Tokyo, and one night we were sitting at a bar and having beers and started comparing what our lives were like as children. And he grew up much the same kind of social environment that I was in. And I said, you know, what was life like for you? What did you do as a kid? He started telling me how when he was kids, he or he and his buddies would get these little, they were milk bottle tops that were laying around in the neighborhood, in the streets and so forth. And they would throw them at each other like shuriken stars, those little ninja five-minute <laughs> stars. So you actually it, know the name to it. I just want to say, uh, Eric Bischoff knows the name to what we all call ninja stars. There's an actual yeah, name to them. There's an actual name for them. And he was describing, and that's how they play tag. And I said, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, we used to have rock fights. You know, we'd play army and we'd throw rocks at each other. And if you got hit with a rock, then you were out. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of the same. Well, by the end of the night, we had created this game on a series of napkins that was a Ninja Star Wars game. And you buy them. <laughs> I heard you, about you, this on 83 weeks ago. You, you, buy, the, you, buy, you I, buy this game. It comes in a box and you get two black felt vests with a little ninja character silk screen on the front. And you get three red stars and three white stars. And then you put these vests on and you chase each other around, throwing each other, throwing you know stars at each other. And the first person to get hit three times loses. A very simple thing, right? Yeah. Act kids game. So we manufactured all these games, had a bunch of made up over in, in Korea, had them shipped to us because we were convinced we were going to be toy moguls and make millions with this new game. <laughs> got, them, got them all to the United States and went, 
now what the fuck do we do with all this stuff? How do you sell it? Right? We were so excited about the idea. We <laughs> the forgot idea about is, trying to figure out how to market it. I'm still hearing the idea right now for the first, uh, second time because I listen to your podcast. But for the, it's a fucking great idea. It really it is. Was a great, Sonny and I were talking. He just had open heart surgery yesterday, by the way. I got a call. Oh, him, so shit. Well, well, well. He sent me a text. He said, I, I've got a zipper in my chest and it hurts to cough, but I'm doing good. So, yeah. <laughs> That's a good sign. Wow. Well, kudos but, to Sonny. But anyway, we, we developed this game and then I'm taking you through a long, like 20 years of my life here. Yeah. And no, then I, I'm, I'm, not I'm appreciating how, it. Not, not knowing how we were going to sell this game, I literally took the game to Vern Gagne, who had a wrestling company in Minneapolis. And his wrestling show was on ESPN Monday through Friday at three o'clock in the afternoon. So a, I went to him and I AWA, said, AWA, right? Right. So I went to Vern and said, hey, how about if you know, I've got 5,000 of these games, I've already paid to have them manufactured, I'll cut a television commercial that you can run on your show and we'll sell them, you know, 1-800, you know, kind of a thing. Um, Which is Amazon for all you kids these days. Yeah, they were called they were they were called per inquiry sales. Suzanne Summers and a thigh master made them famous. I don't, you know, I don't know that anyone these days would know what the fuck that you, your reference was. Like, I'm just I'm just thinking about it. I'm like, I I have teen nephews and stuff, and I don't think they even know who Suzanne Summers is and what they missed out on. Well, not only did they miss out a lot on Suzanne Summers, but Suzanne Summers on a thigh master was a thing to behold. <laughs> I think that's what sold everything. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think there was a fair amount of gentlemen buying these that had no business <laughs> with a fucking thigh master. <laughs> Say, hey, honey, try this thing out. I saw Suzanne using it. But we, I, I thought, well, if Suzanne Summers can sell Thighmasters, I can sell Ninja Star Wars game on wrestling. So we, <laughs> I convinced Vern to do that, and we tried it, and it did okay. No, nobody got rich off of it, but we sold some games, and Vern ended up hiring me because he was impressed with my whatever instincts or desire or sales ability or whatever it was. I'm going to hire this guy, and... And he hired me to kind of work in television sales and syndication, and that's how it all started. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And then shortly after, you're in AWA doing doing your thing, and then shit, it's less than ten years later, right, that you're uh, running WCW. Yeah, it was less than ten years. In fact, ten years. You know, I started in the AWA in '87. By '97, I was kicking Vince McMahon's ass all over. Damn, that's impressive. That is fucking impressive. Here in uh, Southern California, there wasn't a lot of uh, WCW uh, syndication unless you had a certain package of uh, cable TV, right? Right. Um, luckily, my grandparents were huge Dodger fans and, uh, you know, baseball fans. So they bought the, the Turner package that had TBS and TNT. So I was watching at a very young age between WWF and WCW. And I got to say, like, uh, a lot of shit changed even before we're talking NWO. We're talking, like, when you came in, there, 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 was, a lot of, there was a lot of shifts in um, even Vader and uh, guys like that. You were, you were no longer copying what WWF was doing. And prior to that, that's kind of what WCW... WCW had done, although I enjoyed it because 
I'm I've got the best of both worlds. I'm watching WWF. I'm watching WCW. I'm watching them back both and back and forth. You kind. It seemed like you kind of had a vision that you weren't going to be able to compete. I guess as you said before with eighty on eighty three weeks. But be honest, you kind of knew you were going to fucking you know change the world at that point. Not maybe not change the world, but you were going to change the the wrestling world by not doing the same fucking thing, even in 93. I didn't know that. Um, What I did know is that here, it it comes down to, you really got three choices. And I I recognize this in 93. I can either be better than the WWF, which was, it was at the time. Mm -hmm. I can be worse than the WWF, or I can be different than the WWF. I, I I wasn't naive enough to think that there, I was going to come up with lightning in the bottle and find a way to be better than the WWF. They were already very good at what they did. Yeah. They were very good at targeting kids 6 to 11. They were very good in licensing and merchandising. They had really developed some strong characters that were geared towards that younger audience. And I knew there was no way I was going to be better at that than them. And I knew I didn't want to be worse than WWF. So by default, I had to be different. And being, diff- being different than the WWF was my mantra. You know, first thing in the morning when I would walk into the office, you know, it was, okay, how can we be different than them? Not how can we be better, how can we be different? And my, I, I put all of my eggs in one basket, believing that if I could be different and entertain the audience at the same time, people would prefer us. And that's exactly what happened. I literally sat down, Johnny, with a, on a with a yellow legal pad and a pencil, <laughs> and I made a uh, made a list on the left side of that pad of all the things that WWF did well, and on the right side of the my pad, I said, "Okay, they do that well. How can I do it different? Different. They yeah. do this well. How can I do that different?" So smart, I, though. I literally had that list, and that served as the basis for what Nitro was about to become, you know, two, three, four years later. So rad. I mean, in general, I mean, we, I didn't want to get too much into the 83 weeks thing. Cause it's, you know, you're, you're over there. Everybody listening, just go ahead and go check out Eric on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff with Conrad Thompson as well. They've been doing it for how long has it been now, Eric? It's been like what year and a half, two years. Yeah. We started it a year ago this past April. So we're, we're coming up on almost two years. This is an incredible podcast if you're a wrestling fan. Or actually, you know what? If, even if you're not a wrestling fan, just listen to it to hear uh, how you become an entrepreneur. Like You just heard Eric describe how he put things together to make uh, you know, weighed pros and cons. That's, that's what you got to do. There's a lot of things that Eric says on this show and what he's saying today that I think if you're, if you're trying to be successful, you, you can really learn from this guy. And uh, I appreciate you being on. I want to ask one last question, though. All right. In the NWO, when you've said on 83 weeks before that you had already had this idea prior to Hall and Nash coming over. So before the Outsiders happen, before Hogan's turn happens, this is already something that you're playing around with the idea of. I want to know... Had Hall, Nash, and even you know even before Hogan, if you didn't have Hall and Nash jumping from the WWF, 
Could you have pulled off the NWO, and how would you have done it? I don't think, honestly, I, I, I don't think if Holland Nash would have not been available and made the jump, I don't think I would have ever attempted to launch the NWO idea because the idea had to have, in order for the idea that I had in my head, and believe me, it wasn't a fully fleshed out NWO angle. In yeah, my yeah, head. I understand. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm, I'm talking and, preliminary, obviously, it, just in yeah, hindsight uh, as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it. I don't know anything about music, but I would imagine if you're trying to write your own music and you're sitting there with your guitar some afternoon, sitting on a piano, and you just you riff a couple chords that kind of feel right, and you just start building upon it and building upon it and building upon it, and that's really what I had in my head at that time. I had this idea that I wanted to create a storyline that that was kind of an internal that would create an internal struggle within the company, mm-hmm. right, and. I knew I needed people from the outside to make that happen, but those people had to have a motivation. They couldn't just come in with no real reason, rhyme or reason, and all of a sudden start laying waste to WCW. And the idea behind Kevin and Scott, the reason the idea kind of came together so quickly in my mind was because Kevin and Scott had both previously worked for WCW. Mm -hmm. They left. They were very unhappy when they left because they didn't feel like they were getting the respect or recognition or opportunities that they deserved. So they left. And this is all real life shit, right? And the yeah. audience knew it. That's, that's behind the scenes, but people knew. So they, they left. They went to WWF. They became hugely successful. And now they were leaving. But they were leaving to come back and take revenge on the company and the people that didn't give them the opportunity they felt they deserved mm-hmm. in the first place. So that that – Great, that it's story. a it's a great storyline. It's an absolute great storyline. I mean, well, obviously, what, everyone knows. What made it a great story is because so much of it was true, and and so many wrestling fans knew about it. And those yeah. that didn't were able to kind of put the you know connect the dots very easily. Even as one who didn't read those magazines and everything like that, when it happened, as I said, I was watching both uh, syndications and or both uh, organizations, and when it happened, I was like. Wait a minute! I just saw this guy, you know, two weeks ago on a different <laughs> on a pay per view, and now he's over at WCW. My original thought, as a you know nine ten year old kid, was, "Oh my God, are, is WCW and WWF coming together?" <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of people thought that. <laughs> but no, I and and as far as the second part of your question, you know, how would I have put it together without Scott and Kevin? I kind of go back to my first answer i don't think i would have and i don't think i could have yeah okay yeah yeah it's so it's kind of a stars aligning you had the idea and then it was just the right time the right place for those guys to jump yep that's incredible man so uh i think i've taken enough of your time i appreciate you uh talking to me and i hope you're enjoying your family out there in florida but i want to ask you one last thing where can everybody listening find more of eric bischoff uh, 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff on Westwood One or anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Absolutely great podcast, everybody. If you haven't already listened to this, you need, you need, need to listen to this. And it will, if you haven't listened to anything about wrestling in a long time, it doesn't matter. I'm telling you right now, they will make you love wrestling again. So go ahead and go check out 83 Week Podcast with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson on Westwood One. It's an incredible place to, to, to hear about everything that you grew up loving. And if you're a wrestling fan now that hasn't heard this story, 
I don't know what rock you've been living underneath, but get your ass out there and go listen to how awesome wrestling was from 95 to 2000, because that's what I, I did. And now I'm a WWE Network subscriber because I wanted to watch every moment of it again. All right. Well, anyways, again, thank you, Eric, so much for being on the show. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Be well. Well, that'll just about do it for this episode of Drinks with Johnny. Thank you, Eric Bischoff, for being on the show. And thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you head over to our YouTube channel. That's uh, Drinks with Johnny on YouTube and hit the subscribe button. Hit the subscribe button right down here. And uh, head over to drinkswithjohnny.com for more on everything here. Um, We got some more episodes coming out. This has been kind of a setup for Wrestlemania which uh, good news is going to happen it's gonna be a little bit of a different format for those of you who know it's going to be uh, over the course of two days it looks like um, at different locations with only uh, uh, necessary staff around due to the coronavirus so but we will get that entertainment um, and in the weeks to come building up to Wrestlemania I'm gonna give you my own little Wrestlemania every week that we got coming up here uh, is has some sort of involvement with uh, professional wrestling. Like next week, I had the pleasure of taking a car ride with uh, Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Both these guys, heroes of mine I grew up listening to, uh, or sorry, grew up watching (laughs) music on the brain. And, uh, you know, it was seeing them Saturday mornings on uh, WWF Superstars, real treat and uh, getting to know them. They're really great people. Um, real fun and funny um, had a great insight and conversation about the business and uh, yeah looking forward to showing you guys that one uh, it'll look a little different too uh, we did sit in my car and I hired a driver and we sat in the back and had a little chat um, so be on the lookout for that one hit the notifications button when you go over to YouTube for that one um, and always make sure to get your notifications here at the podcast um, as well as following us on social media drinks with Johnny Um, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I hope everyone is staying safe and sane out there. And I hope this little bit of entertainment is helping you get through it. Uh, So until next time, cheers. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week, I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan, and this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, 
but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.